0: December 7, 1971, in Westfield, New Jersey, officers George Zelznick and Charles Haller are dispatched to Breeze Knoll, the home of the List family. The neighbors had called because there were two suspicious people walking around the outside of the 19-room mansion, but nobody had seen the List family for over a month. The neighbors, thinking that maybe the place was being burglarized, alerted the authorities. When the cops show up, they realize that these aren't two burglars. In fact, they are two teachers from the eldest child, Patricia, who was 16 at the time's school. Her drama teacher had come out to the house and enlisted the help of another teacher to come with him because he couldn't, quote, shake the feeling that something was terribly wrong at the List house. The officers, after learning that no one had seen the family for over a month and that the lights in the home had been burning out one by one, entered the home through an unlocked window they found as the officers entered they were hit with unbearably cold temperatures and they realized that the ac had been turned on full blast and the chords of religious music playing on loop could be heard throughout the home but there was no sign of any family members as they went through the house with only their flashlights to guide them They noticed that everything seemed to be in place. Nothing was missing. Nothing seemed to be overturned. There seemed like there were no signs of foul play in the home. In fact, when they searched the kitchen, they looked and saw that someone had eaten dinner, washed the dishes, and put them in the dish drain to dry. Nothing in the house gave the indication that anything was amiss. It looked as if maybe the List family had just went on an extended vacation. As the officers continued to move through the house, they came upon a set of heavy curtains that partitioned off the ballroom from the rest of the house. As they pulled back the set of heavy curtains, the smell of human decomposition overwhelmed both officers to the point of making them sick. Patricia had once told her drama teacher that she feared her father, John List, would kill the whole family. And as it turns out, Patricia was right. You are listening to Murder v and I'm your host, V. So before we get into how John List murdered his entire family, let's discuss some of the psychology behind the killings. John Emil List is what you would refer to as a family annihilator. Simply put, a family annihilator is an individual who commits familicide in an act of killing his or her own relatives. So there are many different ways this can be looked at. It could be infanticide. It could be matricide. There are many, many ways. Um, but generally, specifically, when we're talking about a family annihilators, 95% of them are males who kill their own family. Now, research has shown that we can divide family annihilators into four groups you will see some research that will give maybe seven typologies and motivations for family for family annihilators but we're just going to look at the the most common ones the top four number one would be self-righteous killers this is an individual in most cases the father who blames others, especially the mother, for relationship issues or breakup or for preventing this person from having access to the children. A self-righteous killer normally sees himself as a provider and by taking that away from him or her, it makes them dangerous. So basically in these types of situations, the main goal is to cause pain and suffering to the partners and they usually unfortunately use the children to do this. So John List doesn't fall into this category because he killed his wife and his children. And normally with self-righteous killers, what we see is a very methodical planning to kill the children and leave the parent alive so that they can inflict the pain and suffering on the other parent. See, you brought this on yourself and now the kids are gone because of you. Look what you did. The second one is going to be disappointed killers. This is an individual that basically feels like the family that they've had and they cultivated is not good enough for them, that they're too good for the people around them. And so they feel like normally their children and their wife wife or spouse have let them down. This person might think that, you know, the family is no longer good enough for them and they're unhappy with the choices that the children have made. Maybe they are breaking with traditional or religious customs and they feel like it's messing with their reputation so they will kill their entire family to uphold this reputation I think this, in part, is what some of the motivation was for John List. Uh, We'll find out later that he writes a letter that is read at his trial, and he discusses some of the reasons that he murdered his family. And one of them was because he was a devout Lutheran, and he felt that his children and his wife weren't going to church, and they were really kind of getting away from God and not fulfilling themselves spiritually as they should have. Number three is Anomic Killers. This killer considers his family an extension of his economic success. Basically, as long as they are prosperous and making money, everything is fine. And as soon as there is a break in economic status, then the family is no longer serving their function and essentially they kill them all. In this type of in this typology, Normally, the killer's view of the family is very black and white. There's no great areas, there's no room for error. Either I have this family and we're doing well economically or we're not doing well. And they don't ever look at it as how women can join the workforce or provide financial or help relieve some of the financial burden rather than kill the entire family. They normally are perceived to be great fathers, loyal husbands, successful jobs, successful life. Very often, they have personality disorders, um, such as narcissism or dependency of some sort, and they have a history of psychological problems like depression, substance misuse, paranoia, anger, or something as simple as difficulty maintaining a job. The main trigger for offenders that fall into these categories is normally a breakup, like a divorce or the wife deciding to leave the family, or financial hardship, but that can often depend on different categories or subtypes of family annihilators. The modus operandi, or the MO for this type of killer, is usually them killing in their own house or in a secluded area chosen by the perpetrator. One of the key factors for family annihilators is whether or not they have access to a gun. In over 80% of the cases that most studies are done on what they find is if the husband has immediate access to a firearm they are more than like they are more likely to commit these types of crimes or they will choke and suffocate the family that's the second leading cause or something like a carbon monoxide or maybe drugging the family most family annihilators will kill themselves after the murders but That is, again, not the rule, and sometimes there are exceptions, and that depends on the motives behind why they killed the family. If they feel like it is the family is an embarrassment or they're going through some type of economic hardship, then they very often will kill themselves and the entire family so that they can all be together in the afterlife, but not be embarrassed by the economic hardships or whatever the perceived threat is. So the psychological profiles for family annihilators can be very complex. What is interesting is this is really kind of a, a a burgeoning field in criminology. Even though we hear and read these horrific stories, family annihilators are actually not that common. So it's interesting that as time progresses and we kind of see technology and the strains that life puts on families and the roles that we have within our family dynamics and units can put stress on a person to the point of murder. So I think it's interesting that they're certainly starting to more so study family annihilators as a completely separate kind of typology and class of criminal that's very different from the profile that we see with serial killers and mass murderers and what we would consider spree murders. Because you can fit family annihilators into any of those categories, really, because they have you know, in most cases killed more people than three, a serial killer, uh, a mass murder, because in sometimes their family, they may kill the entire family if it's a gathering. So it could be their immediate family and their extended family or their spouse's family members um, as well, or spree murders where you see where they kill their entire family, but then go on to kill others outside of their family after and leave their family members In the house to be found later by authorities. So, again, it's fascinating, and I cannot wait to see kind of the leaps and bounds and what they're able to discover psychologically about family annihilators now that they're looking at it as a completely separate branch of criminology. So, that leads us kind of back to where we started with John List. As I've already told you, John List obviously is a family annihilator. John List was born September 17th, 1925, family, early family life. He was born in Bay City, Michigan, and he was the only child of German-American parents. Uh, His dad's name was John Frederick List and Alma Barbara Florence List. And basically, they were very, very domineering and strict with John. His family was devout Lutheran, and they were very serious about their religion. And so John, as an adult, much like his father was, is very, very into the Lutheran church and also taught Sunday school. Um, He felt like his Lutheran faith was a very, 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 very big part of who he was and go from there. But what we find out about Helen is that John really didn't have a lot of experience with women just because of the social Anxiety and kind of not having the social and emotional intelligence that someone his age should have. So, for lack of a better term, it it seems in a way that maybe Helen kind of hoodwinked him, we'll say. So, what we find out about Helen is that Helen was used to getting her way. She was used to getting what she wanted, and it didn't matter who got in her way and how they got in the way. So, in order to Keep John on the hook. Helen tells John that she's pregnant. And John, being a devout Lutheran, felt that it was his duty as a Christian to immediately marry her and make an honest woman out of her. What we find out after, and what John finds out, is that Helen lied. She actually wasn't pregnant. But they were already married. And soon after, they started having children of their own three, in fact, they have Patricia. John Jr. and Frederick. So, by the time the family moves to 1965, moves to New Jersey in 1965, John is taking a job as a the VP and the comptroller at a bank. He's doing well, you know, He's a, and has an accounting degree. He has his three kids, his wife, his stepdaughter, Brenda, had married and moved out of the home, so she did not move with them to New Jersey. So, When they move in 1965, John's mother, Alma, also moves with them. What we find out about John and Alma's relationship is that they had a very mama's boy relationship, right? Alma was very domineering. She had opinions about everything. She certainly was a mainstay in John's life, uh, so much to the point that he brought her to live with him and his family in Breeze Knoll. Now, they have... Obviously, enough space for his mother to live there. She basically has her own apartment on the third floor with like a stove and can cook for herself up there and really like a, a full functioning mother in law apartment in this house. Because what we find out is that John moves his family to Westfield, New Jersey, into a mansion that has 19 rooms, then has a name. It's called Breezenall. So I will just stop here and say that anytime you move to a house that has like a name, it's either a mansion or it's a plantation. So (laughs) I don't think there's, there's any in between, right? If your house is so historic that it has a name, then it normally is way too big for one family to live in. And there's probably slave quarters in the back, if not. But I digress. I just think that 19 rooms may be a lot of space for a man, his wife, three kids, and his mother. But what do I know? I think if somebody offered me a house with 19 rooms, I would probably go live in it too. I don't know what I would put in 19 rooms, but I mean, I figure if you have the space, you figure it out, right? (laughs) But what we do find out is that in the case of the List family, they were very reclusive. They didn't Talk to their neighbors much, and the house was pretty sparsely furnished. And part of that was due to John still wanting to remain humble as a devout Lutheran and not feeling like earthly possessions were to be flaunted. So I think it's this interesting kind of dichotomy, right? You move your family into this large, sprawling mansion to show how wealthy and how well you're doing, but then you don't allow them to furnish it in a way that is befitting of a house named Breeze Knoll that has 19 rooms. Um, during this time, Helen is severely depressed. She's an alcoholic who was drinking five glasses of scotch a day at this point, and she was having severe health issues due to uh, tertiary syphilis that had been going on since she had caught it from her previous husband, the one that died in the war. So, really, John and Helen at this point have a marriage and name, only they aren't intimate. John is, so the children in 1965, Patricia is 16 years old, John, well, not in 1965, I'm sorry, excuse me. Uh, So, we fast forward in 1971, the kids are 16, Patricia is 16, John Jr. is 15 and Frederick is 13 at this point. The kids are socially active. They do well in school. They all have part-time jobs. Uh, They're well liked by their teachers and classmates. They just are reclusive. When they go home, they are at home. They are not allowed to really have friends over to the house. Um, And they do just kind of go to church and Sunday school when they are Away from the social or socialness at school, as I mentioned prior, uh, one of the stressors sometimes for family annihilators is economic, and in this case, we find out that that was the case with John List. John had issues keeping a job. It wasn't that John wasn't a good accountant or that he wasn't good at what he did. John just again doesn't have the social skills to do well and work well with others. If he could find a job where he could be solitary, I imagine that would have worked well, but in a, in a situation where he had to work with others, John didn't do well and had a very hard time keeping a job, so he got fired from his position at the bank as the VP and comptroller, but he doesn't tell his family this. What John does instead is leaves the house every morning as if he is still going to work at the bank, and instead goes to the train station. So John is sitting in the train station day in and day out, and he reads the paper, and he naps, and has snacks, and he stays there until it's time for him to show up like he's been at work every day, and then he goes home, and his kids were none the wiser. But as this continued to go on, the bills are piling up. He's not telling his family this. Uh, basically, he's just kind of skimming money from his mother's accounts to help pay bills, but they're barely above water. They're they're barely afloat. At the time of the killings in 1971, they were eleven thousand dollars behind on their mortgage and other bills. And as I mentioned, he was John was dipping into his mother's accounts, and she was none the wiser. She thought that her son was being a good boy and he was taking care of all of her needs and she never once thought that he was by and large stealing from her so by 1971 the family was on the verge of financial collapse so john while he has plenty of time and is sitting around at the train station every day concocts a plan and what he comes up with and what find and what the police found basically is the most heinous thing to happen in Westfield, New Jersey, since the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Just want to issue a trigger warning, you guys. Um, Obviously, there are discussions of violence, uh, death that I'm about to have here. So obviously, I know you came here for that, but please use your best judgment. I just wanted to make sure I put that part in there. So November 9th, 1971. A List and his family get up. It is a regular day for them. Everything is kind of going on the same as it usually would. Um John leaves. <laughs> John, uh, John gets up. He's in the kitchen with his family. The kids are having breakfast. His wife is there. So they're all having breakfast. The kids leave out to go about their day and they leave the adults to do, you know, adult things. And At this point, he takes out his gun and he shoots his wife, Helen, in the back of the head while she sits at the kitchen table having her coffee. Uh, At this point, he leaves Helen sitting there. Uh, He cancels the milk delivery and he goes upstairs to his mother's apartments. And while he's sitting there talking to her, She is discussing and he kisses her on the cheek. They're having a regular conversation. He then shoots his mother over her left eye and she basically died instantly. She fell to her knees and what we find out is that she actually broke both her knees when she fell because she just slumped over. She was dead before she ever hit the floor. John then takes this time to go back downstairs and clean up the blood in the kitchen. John takes his time to clean up the blood in the kitchen from where he had shot his wife and left her body at the kitchen table. He drags her body into the ballroom and wraps her in a Boy Scout sleeping bag and covers her face. Uh, Finishes cleaning up, finishes cleaning up everything. Uh, And then John has to go run some errands. So John goes to the bank. He closes all their accounts out. He cashes in his mom's savings savings bonds and closes her accounts. Teachers and friends or anybody that would be looking for them, I'm sorry, he doesn't take them out of school. What he does is he tells the school that they are going on a visit to North Carolina to visit Helen's mom because she's ill. Now, what we find out once John List is captured later is that Helen's mom actually was ill and she was supposed to come visit them in Westfield but she was too sick to travel. And John reportedly said when interviewed that if she had come when she was supposed to he would have murdered her as well. So in this case her being ill and too ill and to travel actually saved her life. After he cleans up he eats a little and he's pretty much waiting for his kids to get home. Now, Patricia throws a monkey wrench in this. Uh, Patricia is 16 years old. She's described as a bright, bubbly girl. She wants to be an actress. You know, she's in school, plays. Everyone really loves her and enjoys her. She calls and tells her dad that she's not feeling well and asks him to pick her up. Now, initially, he didn't want to pick Patricia up because, as we said before, with these types of killers, you have, they have a plan and they want to stick to it. So any deviation from that plan is very hard for them to function in. So he's obviously very upset with Patricia for wanting to be picked up from school early, but he obliges and goes and picks her up. Uh, when they pull back up to the house, Patricia gets out first. He follows her into the house and then proceeds to shoot Patricia in the back of the head. Once Patricia's dead, he then drags her body onto another sleeping bag in the ballroom. And leaves it next to her mother Helen. He again cleans up a little bit and he sits and he waits for Frederick, who is thirteen, to come home. Once Frederick comes home, he shoots the boy as well and kills him. He then puts Frederick's body in the ballroom with Helen and Patricia. He calls the kids schools and their part-time jobs and say and tells them that they won't be coming back there he stops all their other delivery services uh and he tells anybody that asked including the kids john jr is 15 and john plays soccer at westfield high school and he went to go see his game so oddly enough he has murdered his entire family except for john jr And instead of staying home to wait for him to come home, he goes to watch the boy play soccer and then offers him a ride to the house. John Jr., of course, accepts the ride home. They get into the car. They head home. Uh, When they go into the house, I don't know what tips John off, but John Jr., tried to defend himself. He sees that his dad has a gun. He turns around and fights with his dad. So his dad shot him multiple times in the face and chest, uh, nine to ten times to be exact, before John finally went down and died, which I think is heinous. All of it's awful, but to see your dad hold a gun up and, and try to murder you has to be The scariest thing. I know the adrenaline is just pumping because you're fighting for your life. And then to look your own child in the face and shoot them repeatedly, like it's just monstrous when you think about it. I cannot imagine what could have been going through this poor child's mind knowing that these were his last moments on earth. John Jr. dies, and like his brother, his sister, and his mother, John Sr. drags him into. The dining into the ballroom and lays him on a sleeping bag and covers his face as well. It's at this point that John has dinner and he says, quote unquote, that that was the best sleep he had had in months. He goes to bed. He does not sleep in the bed, he sleeps in the billiards room, if I'm not mistaken. But for some reason, killing his entire family lifted a weight off his shoulders and he was able to sleep like a baby. So the next morning, John gets up. He sits down, has breakfast, washes the dishes. He pulls out a pen and paper. He writes a five-page letter to his pastor detailing a confession. He turns on the radio to religious station in the house. He cuts his picture from all of the family photographs. Turns down the AC, says a Lutheran player over his family, and just like that, John List walks out of the door and into being wanted for 17 years. When we last left off, John List had walked out of his front door and basically into anonymity for almost two decades before he was eventually caught and arrested by the police. What we find out is due to John's meticulous planning surrounding the murders of his family members, when he left the house in November, no one noticed anything until the light started to go out and they noticed that they hadn't seen the little children or anybody in the home for over a month. So it wasn't until December before the bodies were found, as I mentioned in earlier portion of the show. When the FBI was investigating and trying to track down lists, what they learned was that he got in his car and drove to the airport, but he didn't actually catch a flight. What John did was park his car at the airport and then traveled by train from New Jersey to Michigan and then to Colorado. In 1972, he settled in Denver and took an accounting job and renamed himself as Robert Peter Bob Clark. Uh, Which was the name of one of his college classmates? What I found interesting and an interesting fact about this is that Bob Clark was obviously an actual person, and he later asserted that he didn't know who John List was. So it is crazy to me that he took the name of a college classmate that he remembered, but the classmate didn't remember John. And I think this is a testament to his lack of social skills, right? Like he wanted to be more social. He wanted to have the ability to talk to people and be charismatic, and it simply just did not happen for him. From 1979 to 1986, we know that he was moving up the ranks again, and he became the controller at a paper box manufacturer right outside of Denver. He again joined a Lutheran congregation there, and he ran a carpool for shut-in church members, so he went back to living a a good Christian life after he killed his entire family. At one of these religious gatherings um, at the Lutheran church, he met an Army PX clerk named Dolores Miller, and in 1985, he married her. And in 1988, the couple moved to Midlothian, Virginia, where John List, who was still going by the name Robert Clark, resumed his work as an accountant. So by May of 1989, John List has been on the run for 18 years. What is known to be the case is that the police had did everything they knew possible to keep this crime in the news. They did what most police officers do. They reposted the story in the newspaper and ran news articles about it and ran TV segments on the news about it on any anniversary that would have passed. So, the first anniversary, the third, the fifth, the seventh, anything to jog people's memories and ask the public for information about finding John List and bringing him to justice for the murder of his family, but to no avail. Finally, the police are desperate and they come up with an idea. In 1989, there was a show on Fox called America's Most Wanted, and this was its first year on the air. And so usually they definitely follow different types of crimes and you were able to call in at the end of the show. They, let me backtrack. So for those of you who don't know what America's Most Wanted is, because I guess you live under a rock or don't watch television, America's Most Wanted was a show that ran and started in 1989 and ran for many, many years that was hosted by John Walsh. And what the show was is they would do reenactments of crimes that the police were looking for tips and help to bring the perpetrator to justice. And so at the end of every reenactment, they would show a picture of the person and give a tip line. And if you had information for the police or anything, you could call. And hopefully that would lead to the capture of these people. And over the years, they were able to put many, many people away. Uh, John Walsh, who was the host of the show, also has a background. John Walsh was a family rights advocate because of the murder Uh, of his six-year-old son, Adam, in Hollywood, Florida, in the years prior to that. So he was a staunch family advocate. He was a staunch violence advocacy worker, and that is how he ended up hosting America's Most Wanted. So when the police initially came to America's Most Wanted, with the discussion of putting the List Family Murders on the show, the producers immediately were like, no, no, the case is a cold case. We're not going to get any tips for you. It's just kind of a pointless segment. We really want to focus on cases that we think our viewers can help us solve. But John Walsh sensing something and maybe the the dad in him and the parent in him really connected with these poor babies, this man's children that he murdered viciously, decided that he wanted to do the segment because he felt that he needed to be brought to justice and someone needed to do that. And he felt that putting him on the show would absolutely helped them get to that point. The (laughs) John Walsh overrode them and was like, nope, absolutely not. We are definitely doing this show. That man needs to be brought to justice, and my viewers are going to be the ones to do it. The segment airs on America's Most Wanted, and because John List cut himself out of all the family photos before he left the home, nobody really had anything to go on to show what John List would look like from 1971 to 1989 when they're running the segment. So what they do is they reach out to a forensic artist named Frank Bender, and he is able to replicate a clay bust that is supposed to resemble John List, and this is what they use in place of a picture. Now, the insane part about this is that Frank Bender is an amazing forensic artist and rest in peace because he has now passed away from cancer. But he basically went to the FBI and was like, tell me what John List would be like. And so the FBI profiles John List and they tell him, you know, that he is, Going to be the kind of guy that wears a suit and tie to mow the lawn, and he's going to be very staunch and kind of upright. He's going to be very, you know, strict Lutheran. He's going to be, you know, the type that would be feel like contacts are too vain so he's going to wear glasses but he's not going to wear pretentious glasses they're going to be thick rimmed dark glasses much like the ones he had before because he wasn't going to change his appearance in any way he was going to feel like those type of glasses made him look smart and authoritarian subconsciously so he wouldn't change his look from that um Frank Bender also looked at photos of his mom and his dad so that he could kind of do age progression and see what he thought by combination that John Bender would look like. In fact, it's a known story and part of what he told on an episode of Forensic was regarding this case is that he looked for the right pair of glasses for weeks. He scoured secondhand stores and bargain bins and Goodwill's until he found just the right pair. And I will post the clay bust and a picture of John List um, on Instagram and on the Twitter so that you can look at the comparison, but it is an uncanny resemblance. Frank Bender knocked it out of the park. At the end of the segment on one of John List's old neighbors, when he lived in Denver, recognized him and she was sitting there with her believe her daughter and they're watching it and she's like that's and she looks at it and she tell, looks to her daughter and she was like that's Bob that is our neighbor Bob I, I know that's who it is and she blows it off and she's like no mom that's not not him she's like no 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 I know that's him I know that's Bob I know that's who they're looking for she was like, even the scar behind his ear and the glasses, it was an uncanny match. And this woman was convinced that she had been neighbors with John List. So she calls the FBI and gives him the tip, and she explains that, you know, she lived in Colorado and that she once had a neighbor named Bob Clark. And Bob was an accountant who wore those types of glasses and looked just like this bust, but that Barbara that but Bob and his wife had moved to Virginia. So after the FBI gets this tip, they follow up on it, and lo and behold, on June 1st, less than two weeks after the original broadcast on America's Most Wanted, List was arrested in Richmond, Richmond, Virginia, at the accounting firm that he had been working at under the name Bob Clark. Now, List does not give up that he is John List, obviously, he does not do this at first. Um, While he is arrested in Richmond, he continues to stand by his alias that he is Robert Bob Clark for months, months and months and months. He was extradited to Union County, New Jersey in late 1989, but finally, there was irrefutable evidence of his identity. They had a fingerprint match using lists. Finger, losing the fingerprint card from List's military records. and then with the evidence found at the crime scene, he convinced he finally confessed his true identity on February 16, 1990. At trial, John List testified that his financial difficulties reached crisis level in 1971 that we've talked about. and basically he just didn't want to be humiliated with his family. Uh, he didn't want his family to be humiliated. A court-appointed psychologist testified that List had obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, and that he only saw two solutions to his situation. He was either going to accept welfare or he was going to kill his family and send their souls to heaven. And in his mind, the welfare part was completely unacceptable because, as a staunch Lutheran, it was his responsibility to provide for his family as his dad had instilled in him. And not being able to do that meant that his family would be embarrassed and it would be a horrible thing. And Basically, that being poor or in poverty was a sin. And so, rather than them live in sin, he killed his entire family and reasoned that he would hope to see them in the afterlife in heaven after all this was done. Also, during this time of the trial, parts of the letter that John leaves for his pastor, Renwinkle, are read aloud in the court. Now, I am not going to read the entire letter because it is five or six pages, but I will discuss some of the things or the highlights that I feel like are important and some of the kind of insight into what John's psyche is. So, John confesses to the murder of his entire family and he states that he feared for their immortal souls. John believed that the 70s were a sinful time and that his family was straying further and further away from God. Of Patricia, specifically his daughter, he says, being so determined to get into acting, I was also fearful as to what that might do to her continuing to be a Christian. I'm sure it wouldn't have helped. At this trial, it was also brought up that Patricia was a practicing witch or a Wiccan. Wiccan. Um, I don't know that this is true. I don't think that it is. There's not been any evidence to prove that she was a witch. I think this is something that maybe was being passed around as a rumor, that maybe was bantered around with his defense team as a way to further prove that he felt like his family was straying away from Christianity. Um, He also wrote in the letter, I wasn't earning anywhere near enough to support us. Everything I tried seemed to fall to pieces. True, we could have gone bankrupt and maybe gone on welfare, but that brings me to my next point. Knowing the type of location that one would have to live in, plus the environment for the children, plus the effect on them knowing they were on welfare was just more than I thought they could and should endure. Again, this goes back to this idea of being poor somehow being immoral or unchristian and poverty being linked to sin in his mind. It would seem that basically public judgment um that his family would set, would face from their financial and personal trouble was Worth than de- was worse than debt was worse than death to him, and he felt that by killing his entire family, he was sending them directly to heaven. But what we do know about most family annihilators is that they also kill themselves. So when the psychiatrist asked John, "You know, well, if this is the case and you didn't want your family to be embarrassed, why didn't you also kill yourself?" John replied that suicide was quote, too big of a sin for a good Christian man to commit, even worse than disobeying the commandment, thou shall not kill. I guess I could see that. I was raised Baptist, so obviously Christian, but a Christian a section, a section of Christianity. And we were always told that suicide was the one sin that is unforgivable. So in his mind, the only way that he would be able to be reunited with his family in heaven was to kill them. But not kill himself. The last line of the letter is what sent a collective gas through the courtroom during the trial. At the end of the letter, after he laid out his reasonings for killing his entire family, he puts in the missive, P.S. Mother is in the hallway in the attic, third floor. She was too heavy to move. On April 12, 1990, John Emil List is convicted of five counts of first-degree murder. He attempted to plead insanity, but the jury and judge saw right through that, and at his sentencing on May 1st, the judge stated, John Emile List is without remorse and without honor. After 18 years, 5 months, and 22 days, it is now time for the voices of Helen, Alma, Patricia, Frederick, and John F. List to rise from the grave John was shuffled away to prison to serve his five life sentences so another side note or I guess a small <laughs> I guess addendum that I thought was interesting um there was a still an unsolved arson uh, in 1972 in which the house that they lived in uh Breeze Knoll was burnt to the ground and it is rumored. I do not know if this is to be sure, if this is to be believed or has been verified. They say that the skylight over the ballroom where he made his makeshift grave for his in morgue for his family was a Tiffany original, and the estimated value of the skylight piece was $100,000, which is almost $590,000 in today's value, which was more than enough to cover Johnless debts. But Again, I don't know how true this is, and also there was no Antiques Roadshow in 1971 for him to take an original Tiffany Skylight to, and I doubt he he would have even known or thought about something like that as a way to solve his money troubles. And with that, that is the story of John List. (sighs) I just want to shake it out a little bit. Let's think about nice things. That was a A tough one, too. Oh, gosh. So John List is always one that has fascinated me because I I just have a hard time, even with knowing the psychology and the typology, to think that a person just murders their entire family in cold blood and just walks out the front door and into a completely new life like nothing happened. To me, that is... That is a lot of crazy that I don't think I could, (laughs) that I don't think I could ever top. So I hope that you enjoyed the episode. Uh, I certainly enjoyed discussing this with you. Um, As always, you can find me on the internet. at Twitter and on Instagram, it is at Murder v Pod. Please tell me how you like the show. Uh, please, if you have any ideas for upcoming shows or things you'd like to see me cover, don't hesitate to let me know. I love to hear from you guys, good, bad, and ugly. Um, yeah, just let me know what you think. Uh, and I will keep the episodes coming because I really enjoy doing this with you guys. Uh, and hopefully, I'll have some guests on soon. I wanted to give a shout out again to uh Chris and Penrose at All Doc up, I also do that show with them, Uh, you can head over there, we are on Spotify as well as uh, Apple Podcasts and any other places you can find podcasts, Uh, that is Twitter handle All Docked Up, and you can, and again, the show is called All Docked Up, and you can check us out, we uh, recap documentaries that we have watched, I enjoy that, it's a lot less heavy than that, so after you're done listening to me, head over there for a palate cleanser, you're sure to enjoy Uh, If documentaries are not your thing, I also am on another show with my really good friend and baby brother, uh, who's like a brother to me, not actual baby brother, but brother nonetheless uh Q so we do chopping it up with q podcast that is certainly more pop culture social commentary so if that's more your thing you can check us out there again that show is called chopping it up with q and it is available anywhere that you listen and find podcasts so again you can find me at either of those places with more lighthearted content and of course you could always come back here if you'd like to email the show the show's uh, email is murdervpod at gmail.com i like to try to keep it consistent across platforms you can always catch me there. Um, I don't know if there's anything else. Let's see. Uh I don't think so. Uh, so with that being said, you have all my socials, but with that being said, uh, that is the show. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into John Emile List, Family Annihilator, the Boogeyman of Westfield, and all-around horrible, awful douche-nozzle dickhead. And again, my name is V, and this is Murder V Rope.